This week, a new twist in the battle for Bahrain's future as Saudi forces intervene. Calling troops from outside to crack down a peaceful demonstration, completely unacceptable. And amid some good news from Afghanistan, a warning. While the security progress achieved over the past year is significant, it is also fragile and reversible. BFBS. Headlines. Concern is rising for Britain's missing after Japan's devastating earthquake and tsunami. The Foreign Secretary, William Hague, says consular teams are trying to locate them. He's also warned people to stay away from the crippled Fukushima nuclear power station. Colonel Gaddafi has reportedly offered a temporary ceasefire so rebels can surrender. But groups opposed to his regime have rejected claims that they've lost control of another city, Misrata. At least 30 people have been killed in northwestern Pakistan in an apparent attack from an unmanned American drone. It's in the main sanctuary area for al-Qaeda and Taliban fighters. Prince William says he was shocked by the damage done by last month's earthquake in New Zealand. He's been in Christchurch where he says the scale of the destruction is unbelievable. And Mike Tyndall's been ruled out of England's rugby union side for Saturday's Six Nations Grand Slam decider with Ireland. Ankle injury means Matt Banahan will replace him for the match in Dublin. And that's the latest. I'm Chris Whitehead. The continuing crisis in Japan has shifted the world's attention away from what's going on in North Africa and the Middle East. But the crisis in that region is, if anything, getting worse. Now it's Bahrain in the spotlight after troops from Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates moved in. Security forces marched into Pearl Square, where anti-government protesters have been camped out. Aliyah is a volunteer medic working at a hospital nearby. They are terrorising everyone in this hospital. They're putting everyone under threat. I mean, I, I don't understand. I don't understand when is someone going to take an action about what's happening in the country. We are all being threatened. It is clear they are trying to exterminate us. Bahrain's rulers called in foreign troops after struggling for weeks to cope with demonstrations, imposing a state of emergency and a curfew. Abdul Jalil Khalil leads Bahrain's main opposition group. Nobody knows how many injured, how many killed. Army forces everywhere, and they shoot everybody. The situation is terrible, terrible, terrible. You know, I am not, I'm talking now from one health, health center. They don't have surgical doctors. Uh, we have many, many injured people. We are like in, in the middle of the war. British nationals have been told to leave Bahrain as conditions worsen. Well, on the line is Professor Fawaz Jerzis, the director of the Middle East Centre at the London School of Economics. Professor Jerzis, thanks for joining us. Well, let's start with the roots of these demonstrations in Bahrain. What do the protesters want? Well, really, uh, the protesters in Bahrain are not really asking for the moon. They're asking for constitutional uh, changes. They're asking for the putting an end for discrimination. They want to be able to get government jobs. They want to be able to join the security forces. They want to have a say in the social and political space. I mean, the reality is uh, we're not talking here about the subversive community, uh, but the reality is the hardliners uh, within the Bahraini royal family seem to have won uh, the, the day, uh, even though initially we had thought that the moderates led by Crown Prince uh, Salman uh, gained the uh, upper hand. 
the situation has dramatically and qualitatively changed. With the deployment of Saudi troops and United Arab troops, this is really now, uh, it pours fuel on a raging fire. Even though the protesters are at home now, this is just the first round. In fact, I would argue there is a great deal of potential for further escalation in the next few weeks and next few months in Bahrain. Now, there's a, a sectarian element to this, isn't there? Because Bahrain's rulers are Sunnis and the majority of the protesters are Shia. You're absolutely correct. The majority of the population in Bahrain, about 70%, are Shia, uh, Shia Muslims. And the Sunni-based royal family represents about 25% of the population. But the reality is, I think we miss the big picture if we say what's happening in Bahrain really is sectarian-based. Even though the sectarian element is important, what the Shia community really wants, it wants a more representative government, it wants a transparent government, yet um, I fully understand that some of the Sunni elements within the royal family fear that Iran could play uh, a role if the Shia community is empowered. Iran is waiting in the wings, you might say, in order to exploit and, and fuel uh, the tensions in the Gulf. Oh, well, I'm joined in the studio by our defence analyst, Christopher Lee. Christopher, uh, hello. The, the, the US Navy Fifth Fleet is based in Bahrain. How are the events there going to be viewed in Washington? Interestingly, the White House um, saying that uh, they were surprised that the Saudis uh, sent forces in there or had been invited to send forces in. They said, we didn't really know about this sort of thing. I was talking this morning to a Jordanian who said, now listen, uh, they have seen so many uh, flights coming in and out of Bahrain recently from Washington, uh, from, from, uh, from the uh, State Department, from the Department of Defense. They cannot believe that the Americans were unaware of what was going on. Bahrain is crucial. It is you know, this overworked uh, symbol of being a linchpin to Middle East policy, and when I say Middle East policy, I don't mean sort of Israel, uh, Palestine, far more to do with the Gulf, and this is a center point of the Gulf. Now, don't forget what comes down the Gulf, uh, apart from the ideas that the Iranians may have uh, bad feelings about that area, but oil comes down the Gulf. This is a center. It is right in the middle of, uh, of, of, of American interests. Well, in Libya, Colonel Gaddafi's continued the fight back against the rebels who are threatening his regime. His forces have launched attacks on rebel-held towns and claim to be close to taking back their stronghold of Benghazi. Meanwhile, world leaders are still arguing over what action to take. While there's no agreement on whether to enforce a no-fly zone, the Prime Minister's insisted Gaddafi can't be allowed to cling on to power. When it comes to Libya, we should be clear about what is happening. We have seen the uprising of a people against a brutal dictator. And it will send a dreadful signal if their legitimate aspirations are crushed, not least to others striving for democracy across that region. And to those who say it is nothing to do with us, I would simply respond, do we want a situation where a failed pariah state festers on Europe's southern border, potentially threatening our security, pushing people across the Mediterranean, and creating a more dangerous and uncertain world for Britain and for all our allies, as well as for the people of Libya? Of course, we do not want that. And that is why Britain is and will remain at the forefront of the responding to this crisis. Now, Farah Jersh, a week ago it seemed to be stalemate. It looks now like Gaddafi has got the upper hand. How do you think this is going to play out? Well, I think Gaddafi is going all the way. I think he has the power, he has the economic and the financial and the military means. Uh, remember, his special uh, forces brigades are led by his sons and about dozens or so of his tribal henchmen. 
Uh, most important of all, he has the will to kill uh, in order to stay in power. But the reality is this fight is not over, even though Qadhafi has gained the upper hand. This is really far from over. And I expect, uh, uh, it seems to me that the United States in particular in the last few days, they're not just talking about a no-flight zone. I want you to know that the Americans are talking about most potent, uh, basically, elements. I would not be surprised in the next 24 hours to see major strikes by the Americans and European forces, including some air forces, against the command and control uh, infrastructure of Qadhafi. In particular, they want to make sure that Benghazi, the capital of the rebel-led resistance, basically survives. So even though at this particular moment Qadhafi is on the march, his forces have gained the upper hand, this fight is far from over, and I would argue that the Americans are basically preparing themselves to take actions against Gaddafi in the next few hours. Christopher, major strikes against Gaddafi led by America in the next 24 hours. Um, Certainly the Europeans will go for that. It's very important to realise what it takes to get into Benghazi. There are two brigades uh, that that, uh, Gaddafi has. There's the Kamis Brigade. Uh, He needs that because it's a mechanised troops. And they are the elite troops in that. There's the Saudi Brigade, and they're deployed to the east of of the city. Um, Three thousand, maybe. It's a full brigade, maybe four thousand men. It's not enough to actually get in to the city and to hold it. So whatever happens, however much progress that the, even if he uses the Kamis Brigade, uh, it, it doesn't matter how much progress he makes, he will not be able to hold on to a city that size. And when we talk about uh, airstrikes or whatever, don't forget we are doing what uh, Robert Gates, the, uh, the American Defense Secretary, said we have to warn everybody against, and that is effectively it is an attack. On, on Libya, and that is what bothers the Americans more than anything else, especially when you're only 12 months from an election. Farah says, in a word, do you think at the end of this, Colonel Gaddafi will still be in power? Yes, absolutely. I think uh, we are looking at a scenario, unfortunately, for a prolonged civil war, a prolonged fight. Gaddafi has not only dug in, uh, Gaddafi has the means uh, to survive. I fear that Libya will face a likely prolonged civil war in the next few weeks and next Okay, Professor Farah Shashis, thanks very much for joining us. Still to come on this week's SITREP, why are the Russians so keen to test our defences? I think the orders are given not to breach airspace, but just to sort of tempt the local air force uh, and see what happens. Well, for a week now, the headlines have been dominated by the tragic news coming out of Japan and the terrifying nuclear emergency that followed that devastating earthquake and tsunami. Nuclear safety fears grow in Japan with another power plant blaze. The flames were seen from the fourth floor of the same area as yesterday's fire. However, the details are not known yet. Japanese television has been showing pictures of white smoke pouring from the Fukushima nuclear power station. A further fire at the plant, badly damaged by Friday's earthquake and tsunami, is said to be under control, though all workers have been moved to safety. Well, as Japan battles to avert a meltdown at the crippled Fukushima nuclear plant, the crisis has raised fresh questions over Europe's moves to expand its reliance on nuclear power. Tests have been ordered across the continent on our own nuclear installations. In Germany, some have been shut down. What could we do if we faced a similar emergency here? Christopher, you've some experience of planning for this kind of situation. If a nuclear plant in the UK was in danger, what role would the military expect to play? 
it's if it goes if it goes critical. That's the thing. I was on the uh, I was on the uh, lecturing staff at uh, the. Uh, home Office Emergency Planning College at Easingwold. And we created thing, a place called Naptonshire, which was a county with a nuclear power station in it or a nuclear facility in it. And we just wanted to know how we could do it. And the first thing you had to recognise, well, apart from the fact that a, a, an air marshal actually ran the place, uh, is that you had to bring in the military. The military are the only people that have the wiring diagram for not just security, but getting things done, logistics, how to do things quickly, because most organisations don't have that. They work by themselves, even down to the scientific officers in local authorities. They don't know how to do it. But the military does know how to do it, and so the role for the military is extraordinarily important. As is happening, for example, if you look in Japan, one of the things that you, can, you will be able to find is you can put a destroyer, and we do, it in the, we do it in the Caribbean when there's been a hurricane. You can put a destroyer alongside and where the, the electricity's gone. You can take lines ashore from the destroyer, keep the generators running, and you can keep a hospital running with electricity, your electricity. You can create water from your condensers. You can do all that. There isn't a single thing. And, of course, you can go and uh, do assessments because, say, a destroyer will have a helicopter hanging on the back. They can, on an island or a, or a size of the area we're talking about, three quarters of an hour, you can actually make an assessment of the, of the damage and the human damage. You can say, right, I've just seen 14 guys sitting on a roof just down the coast. Do you want me to go and fetch them? That is the extent of having to use the, uh, use, uh, the military NAS that you've got available. The issue is when do you militarise? We had this with foot and mouth 10 years ago. that We, we, we tried a sort of government response and eventually you militarise. Do you have to make that decision quite early? You have to make the decision, and we made the decision quite early, that the military has to be on standby. And this could be a nuclear attack, don't forget. It can be any disaster like that. But when you, when you look at the, the zones which you have to put round, let's say an ordinary power station which has gone wonky, it's not much different. You've got to say, what do we do with the guys that are left in there, the families, the children left in there? The military, you bring in as soon as possible. They have the facilities. Look what's going on in Japan at the moment. The Americans are offshore helping, and also it's the uh, Japanese military are doing a lot of the work and perhaps most of the coordinated work. Now, it's been a good news week in Afghanistan, at least according to British and American commanders, who've claimed that the Taliban is being decimated by special forces in Helmand. While they admit the next few months will be decisive, they say the number of insurgent weapon caches discovered across Afghanistan has tripled in the last year. At a briefing this week, military leaders gave details of a major air assault involving 1st Battalion, the Royal Irish Regiment. Alongside US and Afghan forces, they went into Subodabad in great numbers, meeting no insurgent resistance. And according to one Royal Irish's commanding officer, Lieutenant Colonel Colin Weir, they won the vital support of tribal leaders. This particular local elder, a chap called um, Haji Laljan, um, has been sparring with us over the last five months or so. Um, but it's now come to the point where he's decided to throw it. He states that he has decided to throw his lot in um, with the government. Well, it was the biggest airdrop for one Royal Irish since the Second World War, but one that was led by Afghan soldiers. Major James Colby was there. At no time did the ANA have to call upon the uh, ISAF elements to, uh, for help to get them out of trouble. Uh, they dealt with everything themselves. This just proves that it's one step closer to the ANA being able to stand up on their own. 
Well, such advances are vital if we're to meet that target of ending frontline combat operations in Afghanistan by 2014. So how well are we doing and how will the Taliban respond? Questions I put earlier to Major General John Lorimer, the Strategic Communications Officer for the Chief of the Defence Staff. And I started by suggesting that using words like decimated suggests victories in sight. Well, I think it's more the the, the kind of language that... uh tells us that, the, uh, that ISAF and the Afghan National Security Forces are on the front foot uh, taking the uh, fight to the insurgents um, and they've regained the initiative across Afghanistan. Now part of that improvement's been put down to winning round more Afghan tribal leaders. If we look at the operation we learned about this week in Zubarabad, how important are things like that? Well, those kind of operations are very important, and it demonstrates how um, how ISAF and the Afghan National Security Forces want to get out there and protect the local population, want to extend the authority and the influence of the government uh, government of Afghanistan, and um, and give the locals confidence. Now, that operation was led by members of the Afghan National Army. That's a key staging post. This idea of ending our combat role by 2014. That's right. The, um, we've put a lot of effort into um, training the Afghan National Security Forces, both the army and the police. And, uh, and over the next few years, uh, the, uh, the Afghan National Security Forces will gradually take uh, sort of the lead role in the provision of security across Afghanistan. And we've been hearing this week about this Im- improved conditions in Afghanistan, about advances made against insurgents. But Taliban activity is expected to rise again in the spring. And in a way, that's when you really find out how well we're doing. Well, I think we're going to find that um, you know, ISAF and the, the Afghan National Security Forces will remain on the front foot. It's been a, a different winter this year. It's been much more um, mild than it normally is. The tempo from the ISAF point of view has, has remained high. Um, and what we'll see uh, later on this year is whether the the important progress that was made after operations like Opmashtarak and Ophankari uh, last year, whether that uh, that progress has been maintained, particularly in the areas of, of district and, and local governance and, and eco- economic development, as well as uh, in terms of security. And that echoes what we've been hearing about. It isn't just a military situation. There has to be a political settlement as well. Are you confident that that political settlement is progressing as well as it could be? Of course, the um, the politics are critical. And the politics are about 80% of all of this. It's about uh, governance. It's about justice. It's about rule of law. It's about uh, economic development. Yeah, those are absolutely critical. And a lot of effort has been put in by the international community and by the, uh, the Afghans into those areas. Now, as well as hearing a briefing in the UK, we've also heard this week from David Petraeus, who was talking to the the US Congress. Let's just listen to a a little bit of what he said. It is ISAF's assessment that the momentum achieved by the Taliban in Afghanistan since 2005 has been arrested in much of the country and reversed in a number of important areas. However, while the security progress achieved over the past year is significant, it is also fragile and reversible. Fragile and reversible. That's what David Petraeus says. Are you worried these gains could be lost? Well, I think the, um, the commanders on the ground are, are genuinely optimistic, but they do recognise the challenges. There's still a lot of work to, to do. 20, 2011 is still going to be a tough year, but they'll carry on concentrating on training the Afghan National Security Forces, taking the fight to the insurgent, uh, supporting uh, local governance and, and development and, and helping the government of Af- Afghanistan um, extend its influence and authority. 
Now, Hamid Karzai is due to announce next week the provinces that will be the first to come under Afghan control. Do you think Helmand will be on that list? Well, I'm not going to speculate what the uh, the president may or may not say. And the important thing about uh, about transition and the and the announcement next week that this is the start of the process that will lead um, all the way through to these, the end of 2014. But it's not going to be a quick drawdown of troops. It's going to be a, a process of thinning out rather than handing off. And um, we'll see reinvestment as well. Um, and we'll also see changes of role when, uh, going into training and other support uh, areas. And without speculating, you say on, on what Hamid Karzai will say next week, were he to want to take control of Helmand first, do you think it's in a, a, a good state to hand over? Well, let's just wait and see what he says uh, next week. Major General John Lorimer, uh, Christopher, do you think Helmand will be on that list? Helmand's going to be on the wish list on the 21st of March, on Monday, when he makes this speech. Let's put it this way. At the moment, the um, ISAF, etc., have basically got control of the Helmand River Valley. But that may change when we get back into the sort of, if you like, the summer fighting. Um, what they've got to do at the moment is link all these security bubbles. You know, they set up security bubbles like sort of staging posts. They've got to link the security bubbles from north of Sangin down to, uh, to, to Kandahar. Then they've got to sort out the pack border, which is quite a problem. Um, by their aiming that the uh, uh, Afghan uh, security force should lead on this by 2014. So that's three years away. So we're not saying, right, by the end of this summer, okay. And then that means that what's going to happen, the NSF have got to establish local confidence 12 for 12 months at a time, not just winter. And that is what uh, Kazai is going to be saying on Monday. Now, two Tornado F3s were scrambled last week from RAF Lucas when a Russian bomber came within seconds of crossing into British airspace. Though such flights are common, one RAF source has claimed this week that the Russians are testing the impact of defence cuts on the RAF's ability to guard British airspace. But why? It's a question I put to Alexander Nekrasov, a former advisor to the Kremlin. The sad fact is that the Russians have been sending their bombers for the last uh, six, seven years. Uh, the move was initiated when uh, Vladimir Putin was still president. And the whole thing was that the Kremlin feels that the Russian people want to see their nation projecting that military power abroad and uh, boost a bit of patriotism. What would happen if... We missed one of these flights. You got into British airspace. Nobody came to chase the Russian bombers away. Would they just carry on? I, I don't think that the, that the Russian uh, bombers would actually breach the British uh, uh, airspace, uh, even if the jet fighters do not approach them. I don't think that they have this sort of uh, uh, orders. I think the orders are given not to breach airspace, but just to sort of uh, tempt the local... Um, Air Force uh, and see what happens. Alexander Nekrasov. Well, the tornado scrambled to respond to that Russian bomber, a part of 111 Fighter Squadron, which is being disbanded this month. Our reporter, Will Inglis, is at their base at RAF Lucas. Yes, hello. Um, Trouble One Squadron um, ceased a quick reaction alert duties, policing the skies, keeping us safe here in the UK from unwanted intruding aircraft. Um, earlier this week, in fact, and uh, are being formally disbanded uh, next week. Um, I'm joined now by one of their pilots, Flight Lieutenant Mark Coram. Mark, what's it been like to fly the F3? Oh, it's been tremendous. I've had a great time on the squadron the last few years. Um, the aircraft's fun, it's challenging, but it's also quite rewarding. Uh, it's really 
a nice aircraft. Also, the, the two-seat side of it is quite good. The crew cooperation that you have with uh, your navigator you fly with, it's, it's really good. Yeah, tell me what happens when you scramble. You know, how, what, what goes off? Is there a bell and then what happens? Yeah, initially we get a message come through on our internal communication system from the people that monitor the skies over the UK. They then give us a message telling us uh, there's a scramble. They tell us uh, initial information such as the direction and height that we need to go to to make the intercept. From that, there's a loud buzzer that goes off, and then all the crews get up, move, get to the jets, get started, and get everyone as quickly as possible. Uh, and that's a mixture of the air crew and the engineers that support us. That's fine. And what happens then? You go up and um, buzz them back, as it were. Um, well, what happens is we get directed onto the aircraft and then uh, once we get nearer we start using our own air-to-air radar, find the aircraft and form the, the intercept uh, and carry out the instructions that we're given at the time, be that merely observe to see what they're doing or actually go up alongside and offer any assistance that they might require. Now the F3, uh, venerable lady of the skies, um, replaced now by the Typhoon, which some would say is well, far more agile, far more capable aircraft and you're going to convert to that as well, are you looking forward to that? Yes, I'm quite excited about that, really. Obviously, the Typhoon is the new aircraft. It is a step in performance, clearly, um, and that's why we've got it. And I, I can't wait to get onto it and, and have a go. All right, well, Flight Lieutenant Mark Corum of Treble One Squadron here at RF Lucas, thank you very much for your time. And as I say, the Tornado F3, your last chance to see it, really, will be on a, uh, a transit flight to RAF Leeming next week, where it will sadly be broken up. Willing this at RAF Lucas, thanks very much. Now, Christopher, you flew with that squadron, didn't you? Yeah, I wasn't in the RAF, I have to say that very quickly. I was an attached officer in the Navy. Um, yeah, uh, it was a long time ago, but w- those guys used to come weekly, and they still do. They just fly down, and they're, they're, they're just probing operations. But I tell you what, we went out one time, and uh, this is an old um, uh, um, RF-4, and flying alongside, I think it was, a, from memory, a bear, a Russian bear, and the, and the co-pilot holds up Playboy and flashes it around. There's big smiles, big waves, and off he goes. He was going off to Cuba, actually. A few years later, I was working for the BBC and uh, Nationwide Programme. We went back to film one of these things happening from Lucas. Off we went, um, same sort of thing, met up with uh, one of their bombers, because they're regular as clockwork, or more or less. This guy's got Playboy. It was a different edition. Um, how do I know that? But I guess it was a, a different edition. But they were still doing it, and that was 15 years later. That perhaps was the Western decadence that they were searching for in the bombers. Um, Christopher, thank you for now. Now, later this year, the people of Wooden Bassett will, for the last time, turn out to pay their respects to those fallen in Afghanistan. The repatriations are due to move to Bryce Norton because of the closure of RAF Lynham. But this week, the Prime Minister's announced a special tribute for the town. Their deeply moving and dignified demonstrations of respect and mourning have shown the deep bond between the public and our armed forces. Mr Speaker, it has been over 100 years since the town was conferred with the title of royal. But I can can today confirm to the House that Her Majesty the Queen has agreed to confer the title royal on the town of Wooten Bassett as an enduring symbol of the nation's admiration and our gratitude to the people of that town. Well, later this year, the town's name will officially change to Royal Wooten Bassett. The local MP is James Gray, and he's on the line now. James Gray, thanks for your time. The, the town's mayor has called this a, a great honour. What, what's your reaction? Well, it most certainly is a great honour. I mean, none of the people of Wooden Bassett uh, who stand out in the street in all weathers, I think 177 occasions, including one this afternoon, I think, um, they don't look for any thanks, they don't look for any praise, they don't look for any honours, but this having been given to them by the Queen, they are absolutely delighted, as you can imagine. Now, the townspeople, as you say, have turned out 
more than 150 times now since 2007. Going back to then, how did this actually start? Well, there's some mystery about that. Uh, I think uh, I was the person that did the first one. The first one wasn't actually one of the regular repatriations. It was when the very tragic uh, XV-179, the Hercules, crashed uh, uh, near Baghdad. And there were tragically uh, ten bodies brought back on that occasion. I was doing a TV interview in Wooden Bass High Street, and I said to the guy, uh, the, the TV crew, come on, let's go and just pay our respects as the, as the, as the coffins go by. It, it was some month or even uh, a year or two later, I think, that the uh, repatriation switched from RF Rise Norton to Lynham, uh, and then the Robert Legion and the town council uh, followed uh, that up, and, and they started it. So uh, it, it started from very small beginnings. Some of the first ones there were just a, a small handful of us, and it's grown, grown uh, ever since. And uh, Christopher, it, it's the first time in more than 100 years that the royal title's been conferred on a town. Uh, the respect that's been shown by people in Wooden Bass, it really has struck a chord, not just in the area, but across the whole country. Yeah, and it is a chord which is struck for the affection and the support for the armed forces. There are a lot of people in, well, there's a group in the, in the MOD at the moment is saying that um, once 2014-15 comes, comes along and withdrawal, then a lot of research should be done which says that the wooden basset effect showing that support will have gone. And so will public opinion support for defence spending. People will be looking for the peace dividend. So I think the wooden basset effect ought to be studied far more uh, clearly than simply an occasion where people lie in the streets and pay their respects. Now, James Gray, uh, as we said, the repatriations are moving to Bryce Norton. Would you like to see a, a town near there taking over wooden basset's role? Well, I think that's not really for me to say. We don't yet know what uh, the route will be from Bryce Norton to the Radcliffe Infirmary in Oxford. Uh, and, uh, of course, it may not go through any towns or villages, for all I know. I think the other thing I would say is that the, the wooden bast effect, which has grown up in the way it has done entirely spontaneously, uh, it'd be very difficult, indeed perhaps not quite right, to try and replicate that somewhere else. I mean, it was a, a great event, uh, and the people have done their stuff uh, over the years. I'm not sure you could somehow or other make the same thing happen elsewhere, partly because the, 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 the architecture of the high street in Wooden Bass, it, it lends itself extremely well to the events. A very uh, James, wide open street with a historic town hall saying behind it. OK, James, I'll have to th- stop you there. Th- thanks very much for your time today, James Gray. Well, that is it for this week. Thanks to Christopher Lee and to all our guests on the programme. Do get in touch with us. Our email sitrep at bfbs.com. But that's it for now. From me, Paul Osborne, thanks for listening. Goodbye. This is Sit Rep on BFBS.